Hello, this is Robert Picardo, the holographic doctor from Star Trek Voyager and Commander Woolsey from Stargate Atlantis. If I only get in Star Wars someday, I will have made the trifecta. And you're listening to Neil Before Pod, because you are smart. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that you haven't experienced until you've heard it in the original Klingon. I'm your host Craig and it's time for our annual First Contact Day celebration. 40 years to go, so this could be a bumper negative anniversary. I don't know, we can talk about it. But joining me to discuss the First Contact Day celebrations are Angus and Natalie. Hello. Hello. Happy First Contact Day. Minus 40. Minus 40, minus... T-minus? About a month. At time of recording. This is all live. <laughs> this is all live, yeah. You're hearing it live right we now. We perform it for you every time you listen. <laughs> Subtle differences. Watch out for them. So what you have to do is keep listening to this every single day and then find the differences and report back. 40 years to go. Zephram Cochrane would be alive at the moment. Although he would have been alive a while ago. Who's that? The man that invents warp drive on Earth. Babe's dad. Oh, babe's dad. Wait a minute, isn't he also the bad guy in Alien? The Predator versus Prometheus? <laughs> no. Oh, that's Gee Richie. She has to what... babe as far as <laughs> I'm aware. I would like to think I'm not the first person who has confused the two. Good to know that Farce has descended already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Woohoo, Star Trek! This year we're taking a break from the norm and we're talking about a good Star Trek movie. We've arguably <laughs> not been talking about good Star Trek movies for a good few years now, so this will be a novelty. For those of you listening at home, I think my eyes went absolutely giant and my jaw hit the floor. I'm sure that happened, yes. <laughs> well, we're not talking about the mask, but we're talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which is the final adventure for the original series crew, apart from some cameos and generations that you can take or leave. I think most people would rather leave them, although that's probably the best bit of the film, that opening sequence. But anyway, we're not talking about that. We already did. You can listen back to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, our First Contact Day special this year is talking about this. This is one of the good ones. Like I said, it's... Mm. An even-numbered Star Trek movie, which makes it one of the good ones. Although, you have to reverse that for the reboot movies, because Into Darkness is the terrible one. I liked Into Darkness. <sighs> Don't even start. Is Into Darkness the Chris Pine? <laughs> it's and, one of the Chris Pine and ones, And Carl yes. Urban. Yes. Yeah, that's where Star Trek gets good. <laughs> <laughs> but there are three of those, and one of them is not good. I loved it. Do you know which one I'm even talking about? Yeah, can you yeah. name any of the things that happened or what, what you like Into about Darkness. Into Darkness? Doesn't he say, I'm a physicist, not a metaphysicist? <laughs> 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 or something like that. I'm talking about Carl Urban, by the way. He does pod racing at the start, and <laughs> then Carl Urban's there, and then Chris Pine maybe kisses someone, and then the ship shakes and then they go back to the house natalie is the living embodiment of that meme where it's a picture of patrick stewart with a quote from obi-wan kenobi that says gandalf (laughs) 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 if you think back though i'm not wrong because chris pine drives a really fast car 
at the start of uh, Into Darkness. No. That's not Into Darkness. That's Star Trek, <laughs> open bracket, 2009, close bracket. Oh, Star Trek, open bracket, 2009, close bracket, okay. For God's sakes, I'm an amnesiac, not a <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Into Darkness is the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, forgettable. There you go, Craig, vindication. I wish it was forgettable. This is my spoiler for you thought, by the way. I don't even really remember what happened in this film. <laughs> well, that's a great start. That's what you want to hear at the beginning of a podcast. I watched this thing and can't remember it. I'm actually on IMDb right now to jolt my memory, and it is working. But also expect some fun IMDb facts. Mm. Also, this episode is sponsored by IMDb. Mm. Except it isn't, so IMDb don't sue us for claiming affiliation. Why would they sue? All of our fans will really enjoy the IMDb. <laughs> All of your statements are followed by disclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start off with some spoiler-free thoughts then. Since Natalie needs her memory jogged, we'll perhaps go to you a bit later. But Angus, I'm guessing you have some paper charts that you can flip through very quickly to tell us about your spoiler-free thoughts on the Undiscovered Country. Yeah, in fact, it makes the content of those paper charts entirely meaningless, that I just flip through them so quickly. I start out watching every one of these older Star Trek movies with the assumption that I've seen them before because I think I absorbed a lot of sci-fi and Star Trek through osmosis in my childhood. My mum was a bit of a Star Trek fan, so whenever the TV show was on, that was on, and I would see it. And now I can't really tell you how much of the original series I've seen, but I feel as if I've seen quite a lot of it. And the same thing happens with the movies where there are some, the more well-known ones, or the ones with standout moments, culturally significant or memeable moments that I know I've definitely seen. This one, I just assumed I had seen. And as I was watching it with you the other night, I was thinking, I don't know if I have seen this before. I would surely remember <laughs> certain parts of it. And I don't know whether or not it is, again, just through stuff being out there in the zeitgeist that I was aware of this. I feel like I haven't. And this was my first time watching it. Enjoyed it. I liked some of the pulpier things about it, which we'll get into later. Those are my spoiler-free thoughts. Cool. Natalie, can you remember it enough to ascertain whether you liked it or not? Yeah. What I'll do is I'll give you my spoiler-free thoughts to start with. Do that. Can you believe that Star Trek Six had... Six writers, because with the way that story went, I believe it had six writers. If you get my drift, I'm looking at Gus, he doesn't seem to get my drift. Anyway, it was interesting because I felt like the film itself was a spoiler because I haven't had the luxury to watch these in any order because we've just watched whatever has come up for First Contact Day. So I, for example, will this be a spoiler to the audience? How is he supposed to answer that question until <laughs> you Let's just assume that it is. Okay, well, first off, this could be a spoiler. I didn't know that Kirk had a son. Okay. Second, I didn't know that he had a son and that son had died. Are you waiting for any spoiler alarms to go Yeah, off? I was waiting on a spoiler alarm. So for me, the whole film actually opened way more portals than I was prepared for. I think it's probably a good point because maybe if you're very familiar with the material and you might have seen these a few times or you've watched them in order, then you're aware of a lot of those plot points that mm. come into the story. But yeah, for you, if you don't know what's going on, yeah. that maybe highlights yeah. how much this ties into the rest of the series of movies and yeah. TV show. I agree, 100%, because I feel like I said that bit just not as articulately. But I definitely feel like I am the small proportion of the audience so I feel like I represent a small portion of the audience that don't come from the hardcore Trek background. Because I definitely don't. I've watched some of the newer films actually with my dad. He talks fondly about watching them when he was younger, but I never watched it 
growing up. So I feel very much that I come to these films from a very classic Natalie space that's very blank and very open. It's based on nothing. I don't have any connection or... Preconceptions. Yeah, that's it. I just don't really know who these people are. I was reading the itinerary and I'm like, I don't really know the names of all these people. Even though I feel like I say this every time we podcast about it. But it's actually discovery for me. A Star Trek discovery. Thanks, that's where I was going with it. I was doing on Craig going, ha ha, but I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, oh wow, she doesn't know Trek, but she gave us a Trek joke. <laughs> also, I should stop calling it Trek. There are worse things you could call it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I might have some of those for later. You could call it Woke Trek, for example, like some people do. What's Woke Trek? Apparently all the modern stuff, because previous Star Trek stuff was never woke. You mean because it just talks about white saviours and colonialism all the time? And the real American hero? Do you mean that? Spoiler alert! No, it's more in connection to the new Star Trek, where people consider it to be overly woke. Too representative. Too many blacks and gays on our Star Trek these days. We don't like it, says some people. I don't say that, just to make that clear. I would never say that. Yeah. Who are those people and they seem like horrible people? Oh, it's not worth getting into it now. (laughs) They are awful people. Do not associate with them. So through all that, you never actually said whether you enjoyed it. So did you enjoy it? As Goss mentioned, we were around at Craig's watching it together, which was really nice. In 4K with pizza. Yeah, we had one of the biggest pizzas of our assembly. I really enjoyed being around at yours and playing with your cat very aptly named Spock. So shout out to Spock for being so cute and fluffy and playful because it was fantastic because he's a very young cat. That was the highlight of my night, 100%. So you think that the cat and the pizza and the companionship added to your enjoyment of the movie? I'm going to go with that was the highlight. Diplomacy. (laughs) Does that mean you didn't like the film? I didn't like the film. Okay, (laughs) interesting. So this will be a really fun discussion, but as I've already actually prefaced, couldn't really remember a lot of the film because I was engrossed with Spock. The cat. The cat. The fluffy cat. Not the Spock on screen, to be clear. Not Leonard Nimoy. Oh my god, I know his name. Yes, not Mr. Nimoy. Yeah. Okay, my spoiler-free thoughts are, this is my favourite Star Trek film. I just love it. I never get tired of watching it. I just think it's great. And since I've been stuck watching Picard recently, which isn't really about anything, it was really refreshing to just watch a bit of Star Trek that's about something. I hadn't realised how much of a novelty that is in the modern era of Star Trek. That's nice. Mm. Back when they made it about issues and complicated questions and ideas, self-discovery. And so on. I do feel bad that I didn't enjoy it when I know that it is your favourite. So I am really looking forward to hearing more of why it's your favourite and how it has beaten all of the other Star Trek films, including Into Darkness, which is joint number two out of IMDb's (laughs) top rating for Star Trek films. Another reason not to trust IMDb. That's why I turned them down as a sponsor. <laughs> do, you, do you know what number one is for highest ranked Star Trek films on IMDb? Wrath of Khan. It is Wrath of Khan. It's over eight point something, something, something. So Wrath of Khan and then number two is the film that shamelessly rips off Wrath of Khan. That's nice to know. Well, the one that's also joint. So where's Wrath of Khan here? I'm just scrolling. Wrath of Khan. Oh, in fact, 8.4. <laughs> Maybe it's joint third. Oh, where's Wrath of Khan? Lost it. 7.7 is Into Darkness. 8.4 is Star Trek. And then 
Seven. Oh, it's actually <laughs> Into Darkness is joint second place with the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> Just proof that you can trust IMDb rating system oh, I think it's fantastic <laughs> it's so easy to manipulate people always review bomb stuff and whatever so let's not put any stock in that because it doesn't really matter it's all just rankings anyway I never really take stock of rankings and lists and all that kind of stuff it's just not something that I really see any value in yeah I'm thinking about what is this one so this one is rated 7.2 which would place it a few films below what would be above it <laughs> Star Trek 4. Let's get out of this ranking rabbit hole and let's <laughs> perhaps fire off a phaser and set off the spoiler alarm. Fine, let's go. Because as we all know, you can't vaporise anything on a starship because it would set off the alarm, mm-hmm. as we all know. Oh, We all learned. I learned that. Even I learned that. So let's do that. Let's descend into spoilers or ascend into spoilers. I don't know. Whichever. Well, you want to look at it. Into darkness. No, let's not go there. <laughs> we already did that. We never need to do it again. Anyway. Like this? At ease. Okay, we're in spoilers. We can talk about anything now. Anything. Related to this film, not just okay. anything. <laughs> I realised you were here and I had to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do like that you know me and you were like, actually, I need to be worth that. Okay, let's start with the plot. So the conception of this idea is that it's the end of the Cold War slash the Berlin Wall comes down in space. The whole notion of we're going to end this unrelenting hostility between these two major powers in the galaxy after decades of being that way. Some people are not quite so enthusiastic about moving into a bold and peaceful future and that possibility comes under threat for that reason. Let's just talk about the opening, where we have Chernobyl, essentially. Is that what it was? Yeah. The Klingon moon Praxis blows up and lets off one hell of a shockwave. It is later attributed to overmining and insufficient safety precautions. You have to wonder what they were doing on there to obliterate half the moon and send out a shockwave of that size. Is this a caution for fracking? It could be. Mm -hmm. Oh, how relevant to today. Yeah. Have you written that down? Oh, I thought that he might have. (laughs) It could be, yes, and carelessness and all that stuff. So it's Chernobyl. It's the idea that this disaster that many attribute to the fall of the Soviet Union because it started dominoes falling that then led to the end of the Cold War. So we have that and Massive Shockwave is historic in terms of visual effects. It's known as the Praxis Effect. Basically, anytime something blows up, they add that shockwave emanating out of it. The Star Wars Special Editions added it when the Death Star blew up. Do you think that was just because it looked really cool that people were like, right, this is now shorthand for planet blowing up? Yeah, it does look really cool. No comment. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Gus's face. He's crazy. I thought it looked all right, and we saw it in 4K. It was quite cool. Yeah, and we see Sulu. He's got his own ship. He's on the Excelsior. The shockwave hits and you get a minute or so of him crawling along the floor to get back to his chair. And he breaks a teacup, which I always find really tragic. Aww, and they're really nice teacups as well. I do remember the teacup, I Mm. think I said. I remember you specifically commenting on the crockery. Yeah, and then Craig (laughs) said something like, oh, would you not want one of those? I said something else, I can't remember what that was, but I was like, no, teacup. I think I mentioned the wine bottle. Aww, wait, what wine bottle? Spock's wine bottle. 
Oh yeah, the weird. Oh, it's a glass. It's like the weird bubbly bubble contemporary glass piece. Oh, so you do remember it? I remember it now. It's all coming back to me. Angus was misrepresenting it to trick you into remembering it. <laughs> Some kind of weird memory game he's playing. I think so. So the opening is, it just sets up the idea that the Klingons have screwed themselves and they can now no longer afford to be at war or at Cold War. They can no longer afford to not be at peace with the Federation. And Spock, among others, sees this as a great opportunity to end hostilities. There's a meeting. The Enterprise crew are all invited, except Sulu, because he's light years away. But everybody's there. And they get told that they're going on a mission to escort the Chancellor. So what do you think of this idea of, we're getting away from these hostilities, we're going to try and move into this brave new era of peace and prosperity, and basically the open resistance you get to that during that briefing scene. Angus, we'll go to you first. What do you think of all this as a weighty opening? Yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about it in the context of the recent history that it was based on. When I was thinking about what we were going to be discussing, I think a lot of it relates to that context and how watching it out of context, or if you're Natalie and you don't know anything about any of the relations between any of the factions in this, how does it come across? How do those old grudges bear out and how well are they represented? I suppose that's what they're trying to get across with the council meeting and with the dinner and things and the differences in customs and etiquette and stuff. You can kind of see that playing out and their characters reacting to that. Mm. Oh, you've just reminded me of something. But it also made me think about if they were still making sci-fi about ideas and about historical allegories and things would we have looped back round to a star trek that's about how the klingon empire fell as it was at this point in this film and then had however many years a few decades worth of westernization or starfleetization but then would it come back around to where we are now with Russia and the Soviet Union? I don't want to make it too political. But if it's politically based, yeah. it's got very clear. You should make it that political because the film is that political. It is very much leaning in that direction. It's knocking on that very specific door. I just think it's interesting to be thinking about it in this time in 2023, mm-hmm. the way the world is, the way Eastern Europe is right now. Just to think about how the Soviet Union was portrayed, or a version of that, and that history was kind of portrayed in sci-fi, and how that might look in today's context as well. Yeah, it's one of those things that takes on extra life as you go on, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Because if you look at it through a modern lens, then you start to see some parallels as to what was happening back then happening again now this almost cyclical nature of history as in a lot of people seem to think we're reverting back to things we should be better than because of everything we went through and if you speak to people or read analyses of this film written by people or talked about by people that lived through that era they'll all tell you that it was a really strange time to be alive because no one had any idea how things were going to shake out you got used to the soviet union being a thing and it was constantly something that people were talking about and then suddenly it doesn't exist anymore and the Cold War is over and it's, what do we do? What is life now? We've dealt with this for so long and I don't think we can quite contemplate that but you can see other parallels in terms of the modern world that we live in. Yeah, and it's quite strange to think of watching this movie in the early 90s and then for that decade and then for another decade and another one after that and in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s during the Cold War there was always that underlying threat of nuclear war that was a real paranoid time to be alive and then I suppose with the end of that and the fall of the Berlin Wall and this film kind of summing up a lot of that history or representing it in the context of Star Trek now in the context that we're watching it's quite different that things have kind of escalated again so it's quite strange to see what's probably quite a hopeful film about the coming together of cultures and the breaking down of barriers 
between rival factions, all of that going out the window or crumbling again as things get more and more complicated. And Deep Space Nine did a storyline where the Klingons went to war with the Federation. The idea that they were cooped up in peaceful times for too long and they were looking to get back out there and fight and the Federation were holding them back, or at least that's what some of them believed at that point. And that was in the mid-90s, so it wasn't too long after this. It's almost prophetic, isn't it? The, the idea that these alliances, these solutions, apparently only last for so long before they break down again. And that's kind of what we're living with at the moment. We're watching things crumble around us and we're, we're wondering if someone will be able to salvage it in any way. Yeah, it's a shame because I suppose commentators always say we'll learn from these big events in history. And as you said, it's cyclical. and We always end up repeating the same mistakes. Yeah. So Natalie, what did you think of all this? This Using the Klingons' weakness as an opportunity to attempt a peaceful solution. I thought it was necessary, actually, that before we started watching this, you mentioned the direct parallels to its place in history. This came out in 91, the wall came down in 89, and it's obviously talking about a huge chunk of history. But I have to be honest, it's one of those things in history where I just don't really know enough about it. And I think not knowing enough about this particular situation and not knowing enough about the Star Trek universe means that I think when the film started, I was just a bit confused. I think it did a classic Star Trek thing where it just launched straight into story. And I think personally, I would have benefited from having a little bit more of a setup or a little bit of more of an established idea of I mean you mentioned earlier about the two main powers and I was like I don't know if I would have been able to tell you who they are. So do you think it leans a bit too heavily on a reliance on a contemporary audience's understanding of what it's alluding to? You mean if you were to watch it in 1981? Yeah because I think most people would have had a general awareness of very recent yeah, history. Yeah I think it would have been really really different and I think it's also I mean I don't know how big Trek families is obviously giant but I don't know how big it would have been in 1991 that everyone who went to see it would have been like wow this is such a representation of, of what we're experiencing right now it feels a little bit propaganda-ish to me and it's one of those things where I think maybe viewing it more as a contemporary viewer of this film I just don't know what people would make of it if you were to watch it now especially people who aren't as old as us where I feel like I should know a bit more about certain things but I don't know how a teenager I feel like it gives you the broad strokes though because that scene tells you hostilities with the Klingons, they've been going on for a while. You get the sense that the people in the room don't like the Klingons very much for that reason and they're resistant to the Mm. idea of being peaceful with them. So I think through context you get the gist of what they're getting at here. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I think it's just because for me it's well, I don't know why everyone hates them. And then when they do meet face to face, it's very much Starfleet are just so dismissive and they look down on the Klingons so much. It's just a really interesting perspective. There's one scene in particular, which we might come to, we might not, they are sat down for the dinner and the Klingons don't use cutlery in the way that maybe Starfleet people want them to or expect them to. And it was just part of a thing where I was like, I just don't know if that's necessary. It was like trying to really call them out for maybe like an ignorance, but it's like, well, they don't, have the same things in place that we do but they'll have things in place that we don't have it just felt like such a strange thing to point out or focus on oh i don't know give me a bad fight about highlighting their perceived differences but it's not about a perceived difference when it was so negative it's portrayed in a way that's really dismissive 
of the Klingons. I get the idea that by name they're maybe not great. I don't know. I don't know who they are. But I just remember one of the things that stuck in my head was just when you mentioned this going to dinner. It's not so much that I can remember the scene. I just remember being a bit kind of like, oh, I don't really like that. I don't really like how they're being looked down on for not using cutlery. It felt so, I'm going to say it, it felt quite racist. That's exactly the point, though. That Starfleet are calling themselves out for being racist. Well, the film is calling out the characters for being prejudiced and having these deeply ingrained prejudices because... They've seen the Klingons as adversaries for decades, and mm -hmm. most of our characters in this film are old. So they've been in this Cold War for decades. Mm -hmm. It's about 40 years, they say, in the film, I think. So the idea is they've never had the opportunity to learn anything about the culture on the other side. And the same applies for the Klingons as well. They look down on humans as being weak and so on. And that's what that dinner scene's all about. It's about them not seeing eye to eye because they are of a generation that will find it very difficult to see eye to eye because mm. they have all that baggage. You'll probably have young cadets at the academy who will be more receptive to the idea of being peaceful because they haven't lived in that hatred in the same way. Obviously, they'll hear about it and maybe their parents would say things like Klingons are awful and watch out for them or whatever. But younger minds are more receptive to being changed in ways that older minds aren't. And that's what that scene's about. So, yeah, the cutlery thing is a good example because it's the they're not like us. They don't use cutlery. That makes them savages. They have that post-mortem after the meal where Ahura says, did you see the way they eat? And Chekhov's like, terrible table manners. But the Klingons would see the way the humans eat with cutlery and their food isn't living. Because Klingons, they eat live food. Is that something that's been established by a point in the franchise? Probably not in the films. I mean, that's not something that I would know. Yeah, but anyway, the two sides are there. And the fact is, they can't come to any kind of... But it's not like you see the film from any perspective, really, that is Klingon. There's no scene that's like, oh my god, did you see how those guys were eating or whatever. There's no perspective offered of the Klingons. It's all really one-sided. No, it's about our crew. Yeah, I do acknowledge, though, that I've maybe missed something there with the calling out of these sort of long-established hatreds, I suppose. Yeah, and that scene is great because it just has so much in it. You have Chang just trying to wind Kirk up because he wants to fight him. He's always wanted to fight him and he'll do it over dinner or he'll do it in the courtroom or anywhere he can get the chance to knock a few lumps out of Kirk, he'll take it. And Kirk takes the bait as well when Chang says, we need breathing room, and he says, Earth Hitler, 1938. And then Spock looks at him and says, like, oh God, he just said that. And, and Chang clearly gets the reference as well, even if he doesn't directly understand what it means. You'll be able to get it through context. So th that scene, you're not supposed to come away thinking that the Starfleet side of the table has conducted themselves in any kind of reasonable way. Then it worked. It worked perfectly, yeah. Success. Because <laughs> I was like, what is this? And why am I being made to watch this? And why is this Craig's favourite Star Trek? And I think the line from Gorkon that closes the scene where he says, well, I guess we still have a long way to go. And then the scene ends. Now, that's what the scene's about, how far they have to go in order to achieve what they're setting out to do. I think it's really great. And then that briefing scene as well, you get an insight into Kirk's prejudice when he speaks to Spock after the fact. Kirk is enraged that Spock would volunteer him for the mission and the reasoning he says is the old Vulcan proverb only Nixon could go to China, which is really funny. I guess it's old in the sense that the Vulcans and humans have known each other for a couple of hundred years at this point. But the idea is interesting and it's something that you kind of have to look up to understand because again that historical context has maybe faded a little bit 
watching it through a modern lens. But the idea is that Nixon didn't like the Chinese and the Chinese didn't like him. So he's the only one that could go there and offer peace and actually hope to accomplish something. So the idea is that Kirk goes offering peace. The Klingons will take it seriously because they know that Kirk doesn't like them. I think there were a lot of 20th century references. It was oh, yeah. quite interesting. The amount, and it makes sense because that's those comparisons that they can draw. And I guess there's a lot of other literary references and things which go a bit further back in history. But I do think it's funny when there isn't anything beyond the time that we're making the movie and the time that the movie's set. Nothing <laughs> interesting happens, so it's not worth referencing. Yeah. And the thing is, the line, only Nixon could go to China, is something that you can gloss over if you don't understand the reference, because I feel like the conversation tells you everything you need to know about what goes on anyway. Even earlier in that scene, someone says that the Klingons will think twice about attacking the Enterprise under your command. So... Kirk's the guy. He's the only one that they'll take seriously. Or at least that's what is believed by the people that are organising this whole situation. But I love that scene well, for so many reasons. Because you've got Kirk and Spock on separate sides of the room. So you can see the distance between them. That's a clear indication of how far apart they are on this issue. And how angry Kirk is at being volunteered for this thing. And calling the Klingons animals. And Spock trying to appeal to his better nature by saying they're dying. And he practically spits out, let them die. You know, it's a, an emotional statement in the moment that he would come to regret. And when he does his log entry, he says, how can history get past people like me? So he understands where he's coming from here. But at the same time, he still feels it. And I quite like in anything, really, where you get this dichotomy between people understanding what they should rationally think about something, understanding what's rationally best, and then how their feelings enter into it. Because that creates an internal conflict in people. You know you should think and feel a certain way, but you feel and think a different way and it's it's very difficult to resolve that and that's what Kirk has to deal with in this film it's pretty deep yeah do you think you need a, a prior knowledge of their relationship to fully understand that scene and that interaction it would definitely help yeah I think if Star Trek 6 was your first Star Trek film you might struggle with following what's going on but then mm. with this being the sixth film in a franchise I feel like when making it you can probably assume that anybody that's coming to see the sixth one will have seen at least some of the other ones. Or remember something about them in some way. Yeah. But we talked about this though, right? Because like, I haven't <laughs> seen all of the other films. I've only seen, I think I asked you, what were the ones that we've previously podcasted about? We've podcasted about every Star Trek film except one, three and five. However, you weren't on all of the previous ones. Yeah. So I think in five, that's when he gets the sun, that's when the sun dies or something. No, that's in three. Well, he gets the sun in two, the sun dies in three. Great. So I haven't seen any of that. So I've definitely come to this. I'm at a disadvantage for sure. Because to the party, make... <laughs> but you know that Kirk and Spock are best buds, don't you? At least. Well, are they though? Because in this film I was like, maybe I've always picked up that relationship really incorrectly. Maybe they hate each other. The idea is that they can disagree and it doesn't destroy their friendship. That's how strong their friendship is. But this film definitely has them. Quite a lot of it, I was like, maybe there's a plot twist or something in this. Like Spock's going to turn around and he's going to have actually pushed Kirk into death scenarios because he wants to rule the world. I don't know. It was one of those things where I was like, he's up to something here. And I thought that he had a bad angle, for sure. So he must have been really disappointed when he didn't turn out to be behind it all. <sighs> No, I was just a bit confused because I was like, well, why did he have to be so shady? In your mind, anything's possible. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, I think most people would would watch this and assume that Kirk and Spock were always going to be working together. (laughs) Whereas you would think, well, I don't know. (laughs) This could be the one. Seems kind of shady. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I had those thoughts. Spock wanted them to run a Klingon prison. I think a lot of 
the a lot. I think part of me engaging with this film was me thinking that Spock could turn out to be a baddie. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting perspective. I don't think many people would just <laughs> go down that route, assuming that Spock is a bad guy. I thought he was up to something. <laughs> well, he is up to something. He's trying to create a peaceful future. From a certain point of view, that is a bad guy. What was meaning? I just thought he was up to something with Kirk or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they've never been more far apart on a given issue than they have here. And I wouldn't say it really puts a strain on their friendship. I think Spock is just being patient, waiting for Kirk to catch up to his way of thinking. I don't think he's judging him harshly as a result of the way he feels. I think he understands it, but he needs to wait until Kirk comes to that conclusion himself. So again, I feel like that shows how strong a friendship they have because Spock knows that you'll get there. What other things have they previously disagreed over? Greener blue milk? Or... <laughs> Which way the toilet roll should be outwardly facing? Inwardly facing? She's on or off on the ship? (laughs) (laughs) On the ship. I just want to know what the gauge is of other things that have disagreed with. I think that Spock probably has known him long enough that he understands what it takes for him to come round to a particular way of thinking or to accept an idea. Are Spock and Kirk based on Thor and Loki? Not that I'm aware of, no. Cool. Just going to leave that there. Cool. Just a question (laughs) for people to ponder. There are people that work exceptionally well together, and they represent two extremes. And this film gets at that at the end, or towards the end, where they have that conversation. Kirk says, we're both extremists. Reality is somewhere in between. So Spock is the logical one, and Kirk is the reckless Russian and get the job done one. And then McCoy is usually there to temper that in some way. He usually tells them both to calm down and that's when they're at their best. And I think one of the best things about this film is that all the characters are playing to their strengths. You've got Spock taking charge of the situation, puzzling it out, trying to solve the mystery. Kirk's in the thick of it, getting in fights and stuff. McCoy's there, offering his curmudgeonly perspective. And the other characters as well, even though they don't have a tremendous amount to do, they're doing what they do best, except from Chekhov, who doesn't really know his own job, which is hilarious. And Uhura is looking up language in dictionaries. Yeah, she doesn't know how to speak Klingon. That was a really cute scene, actually. I enjoyed them. Apparently, Michelle Nichols argued against that because she believes that Uhura would speak Klingon, and the director was like, nah, we've already written the scene, so we're doing it. Wait, so should she be able to speak Klingon? Well, you'd think so, yeah. Then that is rubbish that she wasn't listened to. I agree. I think it's a weakness in the film that they put that scene in, even though it is kind of funny. For me, who has no expectations on what languages any of them should be speaking. I was like, well, like they're having to look something up in a book. That's what was funny to me. Not that it wasn't like Google Translate. It was because I was like, oh, they're having to use a book. Well, the Universal Translator will be recognised. That's really disappointing, though, that Michelle raised what sounds like a really valid point and then was kind of dismissed. She did get her way in one aspect, though, before the dinner scene where Chekhov says, guess who's coming to dinner? That line was originally Ahura's, but she flat out refused to say it because it's a reference to a Sidney Poitier film called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? That's about a woman that brings home her black boyfriend and it's about her racist parents not liking that. So she understood the context of that reference and said, I'm not saying that line. I'm just not saying it. Okay, that's quite interesting. I wouldn't describe it maybe as she got her way. I would say she's raised some very interesting points. Or she had very valid. She had valid objections and absolutely, those were yeah, to. valid objections. So yeah, I wouldn't see that as getting her 
going away. I think it's better coming from Chekhov as well with his pseudo-Russian accent. Makes that a punchier line. Wait a minute. I haven't read the book, so I have to be honest. So they say what is a well-known sentence from a book that's challenging people who... I'm just trying to think here. What book are you talking about? Did you say it's a book? It's a film. Sydney Poitier. A film. It just seems like such a... I don't know. There's something I'm not liking. Well, I think what the director was getting at was trying to make the audience a bit uncomfortable with everything that's going on because you have your hero characters just rhyming off pretty racist and intolerant dialogue and that isn't easy to see but I think that makes it more powerful because you see that these are people and they've lived in this world for a bit and the idea that they would be so immediately progressive is unrealistic. Do they also acknowledge maybe then that they've been racist in other films? Is it sort of a thing of, wow, they've been racist the whole time, but we've just never pointed it out in a way that's so blunt as this? The use of the language isn't ever as strong as this, but any previous encounters with the Klingons, everybody's okay with the fact that they're on opposite sides. So it's not an issue in the way that it is here, as in the previous film, for example, has them fighting against a a Klingon bird of prey, and there they're like, yeah, they're the Klingons, fine. And Star Trek Three, you've got a Klingon adversary there as well. So it doesn't play in the same way in previous films, because even as the audience, we are coded to see these Klingons as bad guys, because they just are. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite a rad film. And it is uncomfortable. You watch that dinner scene, and when Kirk deploys the Hitler line, it's, oh God, he said that? That's not good. Yeah, it's not the sort of thing you'd usually bring up at a diplomatic <laughs> dinner. <laughs> No, and I think they deliberately position Spock and Gorkon on opposite sides of the table as well because it's like everything's happening in between them and they're the ones that are representing that future. They want that future and they're both witnessing how difficult it's going to be. Mm, The gulf between them. Yeah, just through one isolated interaction. And that problem's on both sides as well because Chang clearly isn't up for peace either. No. And he spends the whole time just trying to wind Kirk up and Kirk is in the headspace to fall for it which I thought was great. I love it when you see your characters being fallible and I don't think it diminishes them in any way. Well, yeah, it makes them interesting. If he was completely immune to it, then you wouldn't have any of that conflict. Yeah, plus Kirk has a bit of personal skin in the game because he blames the Klingons for the death of his son, which is a bit of a simplification on his part because it wasn't the Klingons that killed his son. It was a soldier under the command of someone that wasn't acting with any oversight from superiors so it was an isolated incident that had nothing to do with the Klingons it's not that the Klingon government assassinated his son or whatever but it was still a Klingon that did it his hatred is more complicated than that because it is just another reason that you can hate them Mm. let's talk about some other elements of the plot so you've got the Enterprise whodunit as I put on the agenda basically they're going through a bit of a detective plot in order to find out what's going on here there's a couple of mysteries at play you've got the torpedoes that were supposedly fired by the Enterprise One computer says they did, one computer says they didn't, and you've got assassins that beamed aboard the Klingon ship wearing gravity boots because the gravity was knocked out by the torpedoes. They beamed aboard to kill the Chancellor and beamed back, so the boots are still there, but they don't know where they are. Natalie, go to you first. What did you think of this whodunit plot, the way the mystery builds and how they go about solving it with Spock in charge and running things? Um, I thought it was Spock. (laughs) I thought he's up to something. And he's put himself at the front of the pack and he's trying to take Kirk down. I feel like I watched a different (laughs) (laughs) Which is absolutely not anything close to what he was trying to do. (laughs) And then you rewound the part where he put a tracker onto Kirk and I was like, 
what is he doing? He's gonna creep in in the conversations. He's gonna hold something against them. So yeah, I was like, wow, Spock really out to get him. Okay. Maybe it's best to ask us. Yeah. So Angus, what did you think of the way the mystery was done, the extended who done it scenes? The search for the undiscovered footwear. Yes. I'm in two minds as to whether or not I like this bit because I think I prefer the other major storyline a bit more but then I don't know whether or not this is a good counter to it because it's a bit slower it's a bit more methodical they're trying to work out what's happened but yeah I don't know whether or not I just found that that didn't match the tension and the excitement of the flip side the Kirk and McCoy bit I quite like whenever they've got to chase around the ship and there's all sorts of different places that they've got to investigate and things so I, I like that procedural aspect of it but yeah I just think in comparison to the other stuff I preferred as I said earlier the kind of more pulpy aspects of the Kirk and McCoy off ship dealing with being in captivity sort of stuff. I prefer the stuff on the Enterprise I really like how they puzzle through everything the mystery of the torpedoes that may or may not have fired and he makes Scotty go and visually account for every single one of them to rule that out I always laugh at the bit where Kirk says we haven't fired and Spock's on the bridge at that point while they're communicating with the Klingons and he says according to our databanks we did shut up Spock the Klingons are right there they heard that but they managed to solve that one pretty quickly by making Scotty walk through their entire inventory of torpedoes and just confirm visually that they're all there so that's fine but it's one mystery and then it's the finding of the boots I don't know I just like the franticness the anti-gravity boots yeah We'll get to those. That. Oh, and I'd also forgotten about the, sorry Craig to interject, but the absolute trash graphics of the blood. <laughs> the Klingon blood. Yeah, Klingon blood doesn't look like that in any other iteration of the franchise. We got the Praxis thing happening, and then we've got Muse, Plug-in Baby. Which all sci-fi has copied as well. <laughs> yeah, Since then. Yeah, Klingon blood is a lot like human blood in any other iteration, but I think they wanted to avoid a higher rating, so they mm. made the blood purple. They made it purple, but also like Play-Doh matte. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was at that point that I thought, I don't think I've seen this before because I would remember those blobs. <laughs> the floating CGI blobs. Yeah. Oh, they were so bad. <laughs> Honestly, they'd be best if Klingons didn't have any blood. And what are they trying to say? Oh, I don't know. It's just Raj. Klingons have blood. We all have blood. Well, do we though? <laughs> yeah. I digress. So I think the mystery, in quotation marks, of the torpedoes, I don't think it was as compelling because... They confirmed that they had them all and the computers said that they'd fired. And I guess once you've reconciled that, you know what's going on. I didn't find it particularly gripping. I guess who's behind it and what is going on in the overall context is more exciting. But yeah, that actual point seemed like it could be cleared up quite easily. Well, they don't spend too long on the torpedo thing. It's just something that happens. It's to create chaos, isn't it? And it's to slow them all down. Mm. Since they have to visually account for them and I don't know how many torpedoes the Enterprise A has. You don't? No, because it probably changes depending what source you read. But anyway, the fact that Scotty is annoyed about the fact that he will have to go and look at every single one of them suggests that there's a lot of them. He said that could take hours. And I presume that they need him individually, personally to do it because they can't trust anyone else. So he couldn't delegate and say, right, we've got this many engineers that we could share the task out. It's got to be someone that we know is a goodie. Yeah, plus in Star Trek, even though the crews are in their hundreds, it's only about six people that know how to do anything. 
<laughs> it's always got to be a named individual yeah. to take the task. So Scotty has to go and look at all these torpedoes and then he makes it very clear that you have to do that. The databank says that we fired and he says, not possible. All torpedoes visually accounted for. <laughs> I am knackered. I've been crawling through the storage of torpedoes and they're all there. Definitely. You can just imagine with his post-its just slapping them on or, or his little red marker or something like that, just drawing a dot on them just to make sure he doesn't miscount or lose his place or whatever. Yeah. But it's just an excuse to create more scenes where they can talk about stuff. I like how Spock is keeping the information that he has close to him because he doesn't quite know who he can trust. So he's only telling people what they need to know when they need to know it rather than being familiar with them entirely. And it's things like, we will have no idea where the captain, Dr. McCoy, will be. And he says, I'll know exactly where they'll be. <laughs> you do? Where? And he just walks off and doesn't say anything. Mm. I do love it. Again, it's Spock playing to his strengths. He's the calm, endlessly patient, logical one that's just ruling it all out before he comes to any conclusion. And he's tempering the emotions of everybody around him as well, because that's what he does. Scotty makes a comment and he says, I sympathise, but we need evidence. The kind of guy you'd never suspect of being a baddie. I will, I was going to say. <laughs> he's sneaking. He's sneaking around. <laughs> he's plotting and sneaking. Very suspicious. Except he's absolutely not. Well, maybe. Maybe it was him all along. Craig wouldn't name his cat after a baddie. I don't know. I could have a cat called Chang. <laughs> you could. Angus, you said you liked the prison plot with Kirk and McCoy. What was it you liked about that? You said there was a pulpy aesthetic. Yeah, anytime your main characters in sci-fi get taken away to court, kangaroo court or something like that, and especially the way this one's shot, it's very foreboding and it's very menacing. And it reminded me, you know, I always like to bring things back to the 1986 Transformers movie. <laughs> it reminded me of the scene in which Hot Rod and Cup are tried before the Quintessons. <laughs> I thought it was very much like that. And as that movie came out five years before this one, I was like, yeah, a little nod mm. to... A film where Leonard Nimoy did play a bad guy. Yeah, <gasps> indeed. Wait, what? I know, so many connections. Is Leonard Nimoy in Transformers? Yeah. The voice of Galvatron. And then later on, what? Sentinel Prime in the live action films. Oh, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> so yeah, there's connections all over the map. But I like that stuff and I like the prison planet. Anytime there's that sort of visceral jeopardy or you're trapped on an ice planet, you're in a prison, you've got to break out, all that kind of stuff. I liked that all appealed to me. And it's very original series as well, where you'd get Kirk stuck in a situation where he has to use old school stuff to get himself out of it. You know, he needs to seduce someone, he needs to fight someone, he needs to convince someone. He also smokes a cigarette in this film. On the ship? Do they not have sensors? What? No, no, it was in the in the prison. The changeling woman gives him a cigarette to keep him warm. And he had to fight himself? Yeah. Oh my god. Can I remember that bit? I like it when the changeling woman kisses him and then McCoy says, what is it with you anyway? <laughs> the changeling oh yeah is it a man yes you get all that good stuff and yeah. that kind of commentary and these guys have been playing these characters for a long time so it's good when they can have a bit of a nod and a wink I have to say a man wasn't my most favourite bit of Star Trek I thought she was really cool though I thought her character was quite interesting and the trial scene prior to that is where Kirk gets directly confronted by his prejudice he's forced to answer for it and ultimately he's forced to admit that he did feel that way. Gets his log entry thrown back in his face, which is really unfair, but he has to admit that he said those words. So he admits that he feels that way. And then you've got Chang attacking him as well. There's the reference to Adelai Stevenson, who said the don't wait for the translation line. This is in reference to the Soviet Union. It's just the fact that Chang is really biting at him in that moment. He says, don't wait for the translation, answer me now. Yeah, it was all good. And I wondered 
Was it being publicly broadcast or were the crew on the Enterprise able to hack into it? Or was it on Klingon Court TV? Yeah, they were watching it on Earth as well. <laughs> yeah. It's a damn show trial, says someone. So, yeah, it was obviously of interest to the masses. Yeah, you could just watch Klingon Court TV if you want, I guess. That'd be interesting. <laughs> You've got the right package. <laughs> Subscribe to the right streaming networks. <laughs> and they're represented by Worf's ancestor. Worf, who's a character in Next Generation in Deep Space Nine, who is also played by Michael Dorn, Colonel Worf, their lawyer. A really awful lawyer. This whole case hinges on the fact that if artificial gravity wasn't working, then how could the attackers be walking? And then he gets told they were wearing gravity boots. And then it's, uh, yeah, I've got nothing else. That's me. I'm defeated. I find it interesting that the Klingons even provide them with a defence lawyer. I guess that's just the way it's done. But it's just show trial. So you have to imagine that they picked Colonel Worf because he's an idiot. <laughs> he's not really going to be any use here. He's lost every case he's ever <laughs> It'd be one of those things where the verdict is decided before the trial even happens. Just like in Transformers. <laughs> exactly. But the Klingons decide to be nice and say, we'll stick you in this prison asteroid instead of killing you. And then the dialogue tells you, yeah, that's worse than death, actually. It's not great to be stuck there. It turns out for him, though, it's going to be Berlin and Camus. That's Kirk for you. He gets out of anything. Mm. There's always a beautiful woman nearby that you can have help. A beautiful changeling, actually. Yeah, but she's more female than not in her scenes. I've actually just been reading on Google that they're gender fluid. Well, it depends, because the changelings there are not the same changelings that appear in Deep Space Nine. Here it says, changelings are gender fluid. She's a comaloid, which is the only time they've ever appeared. Oh, uh, cameloid. And I'm also looking at weird questions. Do you know what the Klingon mating ritual is? Yeah, that involves biting and throwing heavy objects. It says, combative foreplay. <laughs> it begins with each participant sniffing the other's right arm or hand, and then each grips the other's right hand as to cause bleeding. How romantic. Sure, but not relevant to this film. None of that goes on here. <laughs> it could have been a sentence meted out by the court. It could be, yeah. Death by Snoo Snoo. Yeah. Uh, um, Iman's outfit that we first see her in really reminds me of a lost cat from the musical Cats. <laughs> I'm showing Gus now. She looks like she's from Cats. It does look like she could look break into song. It's kind of incredible. She has the feline eyes as well, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. She is looking for Mr. Mistopheles. <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles! I mess up the name. Mr. Mistopheles. But she eventually becomes Kirk. They have a bit of a mirror match. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Don't shoot me, shoot him. No, the other guy. (laughs) The line where Kirk says to Martia, can't believe I kissed you, and then she replies with, must have been your lifelong ambition. Apparently they were worried that Shatner would be very offended by that line, but he loved it. It's kind of funny. Presumably he was famous enough to her that she would know that he was that kind of guy. Yeah, Kirk will have a reputation, I guess. But she's also in on the plot, remember? Mm, yes, the one... to lead them out mm. to the ambush. To get her own freedom. Yeah, and then she gets killed. Killed while trying to escape. Yeah, that was a bit trash. Well, no witnesses, like the guy says. The prison foreman says, warden, whatever he is. But I did love the bit where it's, we're going to tell you about the plan, and then they get beamed out before they can hear anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was also quick. <laughs> Well, seeing as we're going to kill you anyway, it was just so on the nose, it was great. And then, could you have waited two seconds? He was just about to explain the whole thing. Do you want to go back? It was a nice subversion of a trope, wasn't it? Yeah. 
and then they were stuck with no information again. They were back to where they started almost, which I always enjoyed. The prison stuff, I quite like it. I think it's a good way for Kirk and McCoy to interact. It's always great seeing them interact. And then it gives Kirk a bit of time to think as well. He does moralise about the fact that he's used to hating Klingons and it never even occurred to him to imagine that Gorkon was in any way genuine. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I've been reading some articles about other people's takes on this film and how they've tried to wrestle with their unconscious biases. It's quite interesting to give that space, especially in 1991. Yeah, and the title of the film, The Undiscovered Country, is a reference to Hamlet. In Hamlet, it means what is beyond death, the uncertainty of that. In Hamlet, the play, Hamlet says that he won't kill himself because he doesn't know what's on the other side of that. Whereas in this, they talk about the undiscovered country as the future. And at a high level, they're the same thing. None of us know what's over that hill, whether that be death or the future. And people don't want to go over that hill because they worry it might be worse. For some, it's better to preserve the status quo than embrace that uncertainty because that uncertainty is scary to some people. I wondered if this was working on several levels of Into the Unknown. So, Into the Unknown! Thank you. <laughs> We've got the historical allegory, End of the Cold War. Oh, I've got stuck in my head for ages now. There's Thanks. the real-life analogue of this cast, this crew, coming to the end of their time, their mission. So it's the undiscovered country of what comes next after that. And then obviously all of the stuff that's actually happening in the plot of this movie as well. Yeah, it's a really layered title. And I think it's really punchy to refer to the future as the undiscovered country because it is. You're heading in that direction, but you have no idea what's coming. And I think when the Soviet Union fell, people did refer to that as the end of history. That was recognised that this is a turning point. Whereas I don't think you get too many of those Certainly not these days. You never realise that something is as pivotal as it is until long after the fact. But when that was happening, people understood that things are never going to be the same after this. I can test that. I'm going to go with any time the UK has had a new Prime Minister. Every couple of months. Yeah, Yeah. And I think the whole Brexit thing, that felt like a very pivotal moment in time and the end of history. For me, it just feels like it's piling on more and more badness as we go on. I don't feel like any of these events by themselves are actually seismic. You can see how certain things are world-changing. The end of the Second World War, 9-11, that was a turning point. The world completely changed after that. You can't quite look at Praxis blowing up as 9-11 because it wasn't an attack. It was an accident. So Praxis is Chernobyl because it's an accident. There hasn't really been a 9-11 analogue in Star Trek other than in that film that I hate. <laughs> where they beat you over the head with how little they understand what they're trying to do with that. I think a lot of those things that you've mentioned, COVID, Brexit, 9-11, a lot of the things that we've lived through, you felt like they were obviously a big deal at the time, but at the time when you're living through it, it's very difficult to know what the impact is going to be. And I guess in years to come, we'll have lived through the consequences and look back. And I guess we're getting a bit more perspective on things like 9-11 because we saw everything that spiralled out after that. Yeah, but the fall of the Soviet Union, that was that pivotal, nothing's ever going to be the same after this as in people knew it at the time whereas i feel like in a lot of cases things just happen to us and then we roll with the punches but we don't necessarily think of them as world changing paradigm shifts i guess Mm. it's a perspective that's hard to understand because we didn't live through it i guess we did but we were too young yeah it's quite strange to think that it happened in our lifetimes and yet we were just watching transformers well i definitely was and i was watching star trek and not understanding the deeper nuances of what it was trying to say to me there must have been some cold war narratives in moon dreamers for you to get engaged (laughs) probably i feel like it has to try and revisit those and i just feel like i need to do a bit more reading of our 
histories, but things are so wild and complicated. Like I'm reading a book at the moment and it's talking about things that happened in the 1940s and the political shifts and fallouts and crazy times that have followed from the decisions that British government made. And it's one of those things where you just need to do research. You need to know what's come before. And I think that sort of undiscovered countries, knowing what's come before to try and anticipate not repeating that. But I do think everything's pretty cyclical. So it's probably impossible. Yeah. And Gorkon says there is to be a brave new world. Our generation will have the hardest time living in it. That's ultimately backed up by everything that the characters experience throughout the film. They are struggling with the end of these hostilities and figuring out where they fit in the future. But I think they're also figuring it out as well. Like it's supposed to be some of their last missions, right? So it's probably also actually on a much smaller scale. It's for them as people. They're like, oh, we're going to retire then what? Because for them, they're older, they're retired, they're coming up against their own undiscovered country, so to speak. That's on a much smaller scale, though. It is, but it also factors into how they're feeling about themselves. You have a great line from Spock where he says, is it possible that we two, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness? Would that constitute a joke? And Kirk's worried about that as well. It's the idea of, I'm about to retire, but what am I going to do after I retire? All I've ever done is command a starship. What comes after that? Again, that's, like you say, wandering into another undiscovered country. Although for Spock saying that he's old, he isn't old, because Vulcans live way longer, so he's relatively young. He's just relating to his colleagues or his closest friends. Yeah. I find it interesting watching it in a modern context as well, in terms of entertainment, because we live in an era where everything's getting brought back. All the old guys are coming back to do everything again. It doesn't seem like there's any progression in entertainment in a lot of cases, because it is about, let's capitalise on that nostalgia and bring everything back. But part of what Kirk's coming to accept in this film is that he needs to just get out of the way and let the next guys run things. And that seems to be something that we're moving away from or have already moved away from in the context of modern entertainment. Look at something even as ridiculous as The Expendables. Now, we don't want these modern action heroes, the old guys, they've still got it, haven't they? And stuff like that. You've got Picard as a TV show, which is about bringing back the, certainly the third season. Let's get the old gang back together because nobody does it better than us. For how political it all is, though, I can't help but feel that they were maybe directing it towards whoever was a US president or some other kind of president or queen of another place. We do not be more not about an entertainment level, more of a direct political. I feel like it was probably a dig at something to do with that. And considering that the queen in the 90s was still really old, I kind of feel it might have been partly to do with her. But then I'm making it UK-centric and that's definitely not the point. Well, the interesting thing is that none of the characters are resisting the fact that they're going to stand down. They all seem to be looking forward to it in some level, as in their time's past. Why are we doing this? Why are we out here doing this mission? We're too old for this. Well, I like that because it's also like a sort of meddling thing, knowing that they're just meddling about getting themselves involved in things that maybe they don't need to actually be meddling in. I think that's quite interesting. I mean, in the case of this, you need Kirk to be the captain that gets involved here because he'll be the one that the Klingons will respect. But they don't, though. Why would he be? Because there are many recorded engagements between Kirk and various Klingons, mm, so okay. Wardle have got around that he's not one to be messed with. Yeah, I don't think I got that from the film, though, when they accuse him of murder and then put him into prison. I didn't get the feeling that he was in any position of power. They don't have to be right about sending him necessarily but the fact that they think that the Klingons will 
think twice about trying anything with you in the captain's chair. Mm. I think it just makes sense. But in terms of actually shepherding this future into existence, you're better off probably with a younger captain that is maybe a bit more open-minded about these sorts of things. And Kirk recognises that this future may not be for him and he should just get out of the way and let other people live in it. Yeah. But we're going the other way in entertainment lately with none of this new stuff. Let's get the old stuff back because that's what people want and it's a bit exhausting to be honest. Mm. Talking about old stuff and bringing things back, I find it really interesting that Shakespeare exists in this world and also Peter Pan. I honestly, that blew my mind. They all exist in that world because it's the future of our world. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the future of our worlds it doesn't necessarily mean it's got everything from our world in it like it's all fantasy but do you think they all destroyed every copy of Peter Pan well no but it could be I don't know when did they ever say it's our future well in Star Trek 4 they go back in time to the 1980s well why have we not watched that one does Back to the Future exist in this 1980s yeah and t oh amazing anyway so I love that Peter Pan gets a little <laughs> shout out and I also talking about shout outs love that 22 year old Christian Slater is in this film yeah he's a huge Star Trek fan and wanted to cameo and got to well I take back everything bad I said about Star Trek <laughs> <laughs> he is the young officer that Sulu yeah. gets annoyed at for two reasons he wakes him up and then questions him yeah. I feel like he should have had a bigger role because you said, oh, there's a guest appearance at some point. Mm-hmm. And then I got kind of like, oh, I wonder who that'll be. And then I think you said who it was. And then I was like, oh, okay. But then it took ages. It's quite late into the film. And then every alien in heavy makeup, you said, is that Christian yeah. Slater? Is that, is that him? Is that him? Is that him? Honestly, it could have been any of them. And maybe it was. Maybe he's an alien and also himself. The bulk of my research was to do with Christian Slater. Was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to know how familiar audiences would have been with Christian Slater playing parts in major movies at this point. And I think he'd been quite a few, but I centred it mainly around the fact that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves yeah. was released in the UK, at least on the 19th of July, 1991. Yeah. This film was released in the UK on the 14th of February, 1992. So happy Valentine's Day in 1992. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it seems appropriate that the heartthrob Christian Slater, the UK would have fallen in love with him as Will Scarlet in Prince of Thieves. Everything I Do, I Do It For You, of course, would have been on the UK charts. Number one for 16 (laughs) weeks, starting from the 7th of July, 91, only toppled on the 27th of October, 91, but would have persisted on. Probably, in fact, definitely would have still been on the UK charts when Mm -hmm. The Undiscovered Country came out. So people would have just been full to the brim with love for Christian Slater when he appeared on screen at this point. And I'm sure people could just hear strains of Brian Adams echoing in their mind when he appears (laughs) at that chamber door. I actually wish Star Trek would have done something like where he walked, because everyone's in a room, he comes to a door, he walks into a door. I really wish they did some sort of like, sort of like audience reaction of, or like a... Like a clap or something, I don't know. That would have been brilliant. And also, according to our non-sponsors IMDb in the trivia, I don't know how true this is, but apparently he was wearing trousers that were made for William Shatner in another 
Star Trek <laughs> movie. Wait, Christian Slater? Yeah. He's been in more than one? No, in this one, he's wearing a costume, or at least oh. the trousers from a costume that Shatner had worn. Oh, and another one. Yeah, but I don't know whether or not that was just so that he could tell a joke on a chat show, because that is also referenced in the IMDb trivia. I feel like it has to be true. Is the joke perhaps that he got into Captain Kirk's pants? It is to do with Shatner pants, yes. <laughs> I really hope that that's true and I feel like it is true because that's the kind of thing I imagine sets have it's probably like oh just put those on <laughs> just put those on <laughs> yeah yeah well those are kicking right we also have another prominent actor in this film in Kim Cattrall oh, as yeah. Valeris yeah the actual Vulcan traitor not the Vulcan traitor you were looking for Natalie I've kind of forgotten all about her. That's because you were focused so much on Spock being the baddie. Just sitting there, you're up to something. I can <laughs> see it in your eyes, Spock. Yeah. I think maybe if you were more familiar with this, you would have pinpointed her as the obvious traitor because... Well, she was new. You, yeah, well, listen to my theory. Where did you, she come from? You love Columbo. Yeah. True. Yeah, it's true. And if you think about it, in Columbo, it's always the famous cameo. And I'd say that Christian Slater, <gasps> oh. as despite what we want... <gasps> He, yeah. he wasn't in it for long enough to yeah. have been the baddie so I, I wanted to again do a bit of research see how famous she would have been at this mm. point so if you saw her show up as a cameo would you as a Columbo fan have just instantly thought that's she'd have been in Mannequin her. right? indeed she'd been in lots of TV shows in a couple of episodes here and there but her movie career had already taken off she'd been mm. in Porky's Police Academy Big Trouble in Little China and Mannequin by the point that yeah. she appeared in this so I think if you'd, in that context, thought about it, then you'd have thought, right, that's it. That is to be baddie. fair, it did cross my mind, now that I remember her and her haircut. I do think that part of me was about, like, oh, well, she's new. But then I was like, a whole bunch of these people are new to me because I don't know what's going on here. And <laughs> I did get a little bit suspicious, but I really just thought, well, it's obviously not her because it's Spock. Sorry. She ends up undermining her own plan by helping them solve the mystery. She's the one that suggests a bird of prey as being the attacking ship. I always think when I hear that, why does it have to be a bird of prey? I get that it would be a bird of prey, but why would they assume it's a bird of prey? It is the only ship that you've seen use a cloaking device in any of the films, but other ships can also cloak. Do you mean you, the hypothetical you, or you as in me? Yeah, the royal you, the audience that have seen other Star Trek things. Ah. So the assumption that it must be a bird of prey is a bit of a strange leap of logic to get to. What is a bird of prey? It's the ship that blows up at the end. Oh, spoiler alert. Don't worry, we're in spoiler country. And you've seen it, so it's fine. (laughs) But she's Spock's star pupil, so her betrayal is a very personal affront to (gasps) Spock as well. This is just like Star Wars. This is Star Wars. (laughs) Don't say that. Now this is pod racing. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I mean, I can't put myself in the position of seeing the film for the first time and questioning whether she is an obvious traitor or not. I don't think the film makes it especially obvious, really. It crosses my mind, and honestly, Gus makes a really good point, because he talks about the clumboing of it. I mean, it's still used today. In my mind, it was never going to be one of the main crew. I know that you've made a firm, <laughs> well, actually a pretty unsteady case. He was really unsteady. For Spock. He was really shady, and that's all he remembers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all I'm going to say is, if you're familiar with the crew and the people who you know you can mm-hmm. eliminate already, then it has to be someone who's being prominently featured and isn't part of that crew. There's the bit with the two cameo guys as well after the Klingons beam on, or is it beam off, one of the two, where they're chatting about something and she says, you men have work, snap to it, and then they wander off. They're the guys that beamed over the Klingon ship with their gravity boots. 
to kill them. Mm. I had sort of wandered away physically and spiritually close to the end of this film. How did it end again? We'll get to that. Valerius is... I'm not sure what I think of her as a character, because, again, I can't think of the time where I didn't know that she was a traitor, so I wasn't disappointed by her portrayal in any way. She's prominent enough in the film. I do quite like when a classic Star Trek film introduces a new character, because you had Savick in Star Trek 2, who this character was originally supposed to be, actually, but Kirstie Alley was really famous on Cheers, so it would have cost too much money, and there was a widely held belief that Savick wouldn't act in that way. But then the audience that have seen Wrath of Khan, so not you, Natalie, (laughs) there'd be impact if she turned out to be a traitor because you've already formed an opinion about Savick in your mind. They didn't want to recast her for a second time because Kirstie Alley is not in Star Trek 3, but the character is. So they came up with a new character, and she's a traitor. And I guess that's why the betrayal doesn't... It's not that it doesn't work, it just doesn't hit in the way that it needs to because this is a new character. So is she a traitor? Who cares? Fine, that's why she's here. Yeah, it could have been different if the original plan had come. Yeah, but she does have the information about the other traitors, the Romulan ambassador, Admiral Cartwright, who's... Starfleet officer and General Chang, which is hilarious because you've got all these people that are working together to help preserve a world where they don't have to work together. Quite an interesting little plan there. Let's work together so that we never have to work together again. Peace. One last job. It's an interesting one. I still find the mind meld very uncomfortable because of how intimate an act it is and Spock does not get consent. Mm. Is that when they go into each other's brains? Yeah. I really don't He's know. He's trying to get the truth out of her. But again, it's played as being uncomfortable. Spock is clearly out of sorts afterwards. Yeah, and the crew that are observing it happen, you can tell that they're uncomfortable with it as well. And all the screaming, that gives you a clue as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> the scene in Sick Bay that precedes that one really Spock's angry outburst there where he knocks the phaser out of our hand. Vulcans do have emotions, they just keep them in check, but sometimes things come to the surface. Clearly meant a lot to him. This is Spock at a point in his life where he's learned how to parse the two sides of himself, the human side and the Vulcan side. So he's not above expressing an emotion here and there. You get an indication of how much he's learned when he says to Valerius that logic is the beginning of wisdom and not the end. So that shows that he understands that it's not all about what he was taught. He's got a bit of practical real world experience and understands that not everything is as simple as they might teach you. He also says, I've been dead before, which is true. But you would need to have seen those related texts. I have to say, I was reading, because that's what I've done during this podcast, to remind myself, refresh my brain, of what this movie was about. And I read a really interesting account of the film, which I've actually linked to Craig, so I hope that he shares it in the show notes at the end. Sure. On planetary.org. And it's really interesting. It's talking about the film turning 25 years old, so that must be 2016. It's really interesting reading this, reading the quotes that the article has taken, and I'm just kind of thinking, like, maybe I would have enjoyed this film more if it hadn't have been a film and it had been like a screenplay, because the isolated quotes are quite interesting. Well, it is a screenplay that you could go and read. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to do that, but I feel like <laughs> I would have maybe preferred to do that rather than watching the film. There's also a novelisation that you could read. Yeah, I think now that I've seen the film, though, I probably won't do it. Birthday present. But I definitely feel like it's quite a funny film. It's quite interesting that it tackles or tries to tackle or draw attention to quite serious issues, but definitely has... Moments of of There's a sense of humour to it, yeah. Yeah, and just quite a lot of humour throughout it. I just want to say it's quite interesting because there's definitely that quote that maybe we should have mentioned earlier and didn't, and it's the one to do with human rights or something. Inalienable human rights. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because they talk about how the fleet 
is basically just made up of humans and I thought that was quite interesting. It's just one of those things that I read and I thought, oh, didn't mention that earlier, but that was quite an interesting thing. Except from Spock and poor crewman Dax, whose feet can't fit inside a gravity boot. <laughs> that they only find out <laughs> when it comes to the time to force yeah. them to put them on. Well, that's another example of Chekhov being stupid in this film. <laughs> He's interrogating this guy and everyone's just rolling their eyes. General Chang is our villain of sorts, although I think that circumstances are more the villain than he is as such. That's what I like about him, though. He's in the background and then he's prominent exactly when he needs to. The screenplay isn't written with him just being the central antagonist that's there at every point. He's part of the tapestry of what's happening and... I feel like the film uses him exactly as much as it needs to. I loved him because I thought he was really hammy and I like Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer Chang. Yeah. We had this conversation last week as well. I think he gets to be arch villain. He's got the eye patch. Oh yeah, I remember him now. And he basically gets to do all the great villainous stuff. The monologuing, the gurning to camera. The Shakespeare quoting. Yeah, all that stuff. Because again, that kind of goes back to the pulpier things that I was talking about. Liking just that really kind of dare I say it, Sheriff of Nottingham type (laughs) (laughs) to take it back to Prince of Thieves again. Any of that over the top, hamming it up, I loved. One of the things I absolutely love is the way that he signals to fire a torpedo, just a little finger flip. Yeah, well it's all those great little idiosyncrasies that really make a character memorable. Yeah, and the look's iconic as well because every other Klingon has hair and he has the shaved head except from the ponytail and like you say, his eye patch. Yeah, I liked him. I thought he was a good baddie. Yeah, he's really good. I love that sequence at the end, the starship battle sequence. It's not much of a battle, it's mostly the Enterprise getting shot at for a while as they try and figure out what to do. Which is interesting because we talked about Nemesis a few years ago and that features a very long battle between the Enterprise and a cloaked ship. Whereas this, it doesn't last any longer than it needs to. Yeah, and I think sometimes when you've got the setup of a battle and there's a lot of the cut to the bridge, cut to the outside, cut back to the bridge. I think it was quite well staged in this one, maybe because of his performance and because of his reactions and things. But it was a little bit different to that usual cut back inside, give an order, come back out, that kind of thing. You got a lot more of his character in that and his reactions his over-the-top delivery and the solution is to use the equipment that they have for cataloging gaseous anomalies to home in on its plasma exhaust yeah got to love it. it's not particularly down to earth but let's use what we've got it's scientific equipment we'll use that and come up with a solution to this originally the battle is supposed to play out slightly differently in the film they established that Sulu on the Excelsior has been on a three-year mission to catalogue gaseous anomalies. Imagine doing that for three years. That sounds really boring, but that's what he's doing. So at the end of the film, it was supposed to be that the Excelsior would be the ship that figures out how to track the bird of prey because they're experts in tracking gaseous anomalies, but Shatner wasn't happy with that and wanted Kirk and the Enterprise to have the hero moment. So it was switched. So that's what happens. And then you get Spock and McCoy working on a torpedo because, again... Only six people on the ship know how to do anything. There isn't people that could just do that. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting to hear a bit about the behind-the-scenes drama. I guess if you don't know about it, it doesn't mean anything. Maybe you think, well, okay, we saw Sulu doing this before, but now the Enterprise gets the glory at the end. But yeah, I guess more context, adding that in, gives you a different angle on it, and it's quite interesting to think about the wrangling that went on behind the scenes or certain stars being able to kind of force their way into prominent roles and things like that. Yeah. 
Well, Shatner was always one to secure his status as the lead. So he didn't want anybody stealing his thunder. He wanted the Enterprise to be the one that wins and solves everything. Yeah, it's just interesting to think that Sulu gets sidelined and then at the end they're talking to each other and congratulating each other on winning at the end. But to think that behind the scenes Shatner just wanted him to have as little of the glory as possible. It's quite quite funny to watch it play out like that. That's why George Takei hates him to this day. That's one of the reasons. There's a lot of reasons. Shatner isn't well liked among his co-stars. Yeah, a complicated individual. That's for sure. That is what it is. After this, George Takei was campaigning quite passionately to get some kind of Excelsior, either TV series or a film, but it never happened. The closest that happened was that he appeared in an episode of Voyager on the Excelsior. As himself. Not as George Takei, no, but Sulu was in an episode of Voyager. (laughs) That would have been interesting. It was actually a flashback to the events of this film. Basically, they fight a Klingon ship in a nebula. It's not that interesting, but it does happen. It's set during this film, and it turns out that Tuvok, who's a character in Voyager, is on the Excelsior. Yeah. But also, in that Voyager episode, there's a guy that dies in the flashback sequences that appears at the end of the film on the Excelsior. So that's the Voyager writers not actually watching the thing that they're putting into their episode. Presumably all be explained away with twin brothers. Yeah, I guess his twin brother also works on the Excelsior in the exact same job. Yep. Sure, why not? I like seeing Sulu in command in this film. I wish I'd seen more of it because he's quite good at it. He's seasoned and I like the loyalty that exists. Still feels that connection to his old crew, as in stands ready to assist and pretends that this signal is breaking up and all that stuff. Yeah, I like that it shows... Yeah, obviously it's great to see all the original crew working together on the same ship, but it does show a bit of progression. It shows that we're further down the line here, and it's quite interesting, I think, whenever there's one of those characters off doing their own thing, hints at a wider organisation that they're all involved with. I don't know, maybe it would have been too much to have them all kind of spin off into their own things, but yeah, I just like it. I like the expands the organisation a bit. There's other examples of abandoning protocol in favour of loyalty in the film as well. You've got even Spock telling a bit of a fib to make sure that the Enterprise gets to stay out and space. Mm-hmm. But Ruth says to Scotty, I understand you're having problems with the warp drive. Scotty's like, there's nothing wrong with it. Mr. Scott, if we return to space dock, then there's no chance of us seeing the captain and Dr. McCoy again. He's like, oh yeah, could take weeks. It's just old school loyalty. It's what you like to see. Yeah, and it's good that these sorts of nuances aren't immediately obvious, but all it takes is one line and he knows what he's on about. Yeah, Scotty has some great material in this film, actually, complaining about everything. Although he does have that awkward moment where he says, I bet that Klingon bitch killed her father, which is quite intense as a line of dialogue. And then he justifies it by saying that she didn't shed one tear. And Spock says it's hardly conclusive because Klingons have no tear ducts. (laughs) He, of course, meant she didn't seem that upset, but Spock took it literally, which I liked. Yeah, I think that's probably just the sort of thing that was a bit of extra characterization or flavor and maybe doesn't play quite as well to today's audience. But yeah, I think it was probably just an attempt to give him a bit more attitude. Spot probably understood what Scotty was saying, but I think that was his way of saying, you're being ridiculous. Mm. Just a nice little character beat. Really works. But I love that action climax because it's full of character stuff. As in, you've got Spock and McCoy getting to banter one last time as they modify their torpedo. They're just chatting away. McCoy gets to say about Chang, I'd give real money if he'd shut up. Stuff like that. Really great. It's a great sequence. And then where the Enterprise and Excelsior just pile on the bird of prey once they know what to shoot at. Loved it. Again, it's a sequence that doesn't overstay its welcome. It only lasts a few minutes, really. But it's exciting and full of personality 
I guess is what I'm looking for. Yeah, and it's probably indicative of that era of Star Trek and movies in general. You said that it doesn't last particularly long, and I think that that's quite good compared to we quite often complain about third act or the ultimate battles at the end of movies that just go on too long. Yeah, it's good when there's a bit of brevity. Yeah, and the Bird of Prey explosion is going to be great for future iterations of the franchise because they'll get their money's worth out of that effects shot, so much so that they use it again in the next film. In Generations, they reuse that same explosion. Presumably that was picked up upon by fans, by viewers, or was this the sort of thing that only came about when people had access to home media of it to watch it over and over again and think, wait, we've seen that exact shot before? I think that's one of those things that Star Trek fans have always known about because the 60s show was heavily low budget, so there was a lot of reused effects shots. There's only so many flybys of the Enterprise that exist. They reuse a lot of stuff. Same in The Next Generation. In fact, same in every Star Trek series, really. They reuse everything that they can. How many shots flying past the Enterprise do you need to see, really? It's just an establishing shot. Ultimately, I think it's things that people don't really care that much about. It's something that's grown in the modern internet culture of people pointing these things out and saying, oh, this is crap because of this. Look at how crappy low budget this is. It's No, it's just efficiency of what you've got available. You don't need a new shot for this. Yeah, and it's almost like the shot is the code for that's victory. You've achieved this moment, which even if you as an audience have seen it before, you know that that's the code for they win. Yeah. So I don't think it's anything that you really bother about. Even in Generations, they reuse shots of the Enterprise from the TV show in the film because it's a good cost-saving measure to not make another one when you don't need it. Yeah. So it's not something that ever bothered me. And I'm sure the Bird of Prey destruction was used a couple of times in Deep Space Nine as well. So yeah. Good money's worth. After that, they beam down to Kittimer and get involved in the peace conference. The thing that I always find amusing is they send the heavy set Scottish man up a really long flight of stairs to take out the assassin. Yeah, well, I suppose when you've got everyone else accounted for and everyone else has a task or a role, there's got to be something for Scotty to do. Such as trying to fight your way through the crowd like some other day. Yeah. You get the assassination, which is, funnily enough, the actor who plays Odo in disguise. Odo in Deep Space Nine in disguise. Colonel West, who appeared earlier in the film, he's not in the theatrical cut at all, though. They got rid of all of that for the theatrical cut. Because Gene Roddenberry didn't like the idea of Starfleet being a military, so... They got rid of all that for him, and he died before this film came out, actually. But didn't like what they were doing with it while it was being made, because he didn't like conflict. That was a thing that he forbade in the first season of The Next Generation, character conflict. And all the writers were like, how do we write a script with no conflict in it? And there you have season one of Next Generation, and it sucks for that reason. And others basically it all wraps up from there and kirk gets it he finally gets it he understands the future is coming and he needs to embrace it and he seems to at least internalize the notion that all klingons aren't awful and there is a future where peace is a better option what do you think of that as a conclusion peace being an option i don't know well you didn't like him being racist i suppose against klingons so he comes around in the end what do you think i think knowing that they were purposely trying to be confronting which I now understand. I think at the time, when we watched it last week, I was a bit like, what is going on here? So it was just a bit more challenging to watch maybe a major motion picture portray themes in a really blatant and quite brash way that I think this quick come around of, okay, I've been locked in a prison and I'm now not racist and so peace can exist. It's just really, I don't know. I just think I'm not on board with this one. I think it's, Difficult to answer that. Well, I think with Kirk coming to that level of understanding, obviously it completes his arc that 
is set up from the very beginning of the film. And it feeds into that idea of only Kirk being sent on this mission will be taken seriously. So what happens, you end with Kirk giving a speech about how he understands what Gorkon was saying. And he understands that a peaceful future is something needed to embrace. So everybody in that room, knowing what they know about Kirk, will see those words as important because of who is saying them. It's the only Nixon can go to China thing. He's achieved something there. And it's a bit of a cheesy line where the daughter says, you've restored my father's faith. And he says, you've restored my son's. I'm not sure what he's getting at there. But I love the sentiment of, I understand it now and we need to welcome this future. And everybody agrees. Everybody in that room is all there to sign a treaty and stop this cold war that's poisoned them for so long. So that's how it ends, they sign a treaty. Well, you don't actually see them physically doing that, but yeah, it happens after that. Angus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I keep coming back to the context. It's interesting to think about this as so many seasons of a TV show and so many films and this being their last outing, although I still think of Generations as being the last time you see them. See some of them anyway. Yeah, have that sort of handover. I like all the Cold War allegory, I like the treaty, I like the fact that he comes around to this way of thinking. I just think about all the stuff that came before and all of the animosity and stuff that had built up over that time. So I think it's interesting to see it resolved in a way over the space of a film, which you need to because a film has to start somewhere and has to end somewhere. But I kind of wonder about it in terms of being a bit too neat in like, a, okay, now that this particular adventure has happened, he sees it all a different way. And now I value Klingons all of a sudden. I'm trying to think about it in terms of, as Craig said, it's the final movie where they're all together. If I compare this to like Fast and Furious, if you were to say mm-hmm. like, this is the last Fast and Furious film, I'd be like, this better be epic. This has to be incredible and it has to be full of all of the things that we enjoy about the franchise and love about the individual characters and if you were to say this was the final movie for those characters personally it's a bit disappointing it's funny that you should say it because i was thinking when we were watching it i was imagining sometimes you see those things where they switch the music Mm -hmm. on a movie or a tv and i was like imagine if at the end of this Charlie Puth and Wiz Khalifa kicked in and it was like where Paul Walker and Vin Diesel are going their separate ways. (laughs) If that exists out there or if someone wants to make an edit of that, I will watch it and laugh because I I, will watch it too. I probably shed a tear too. But you have to think about the time where it was made as well. It was made in an era where you weren't getting these drawn out epic quote unquote action climaxes that we're so used to now. This film does contain so much of what people loved about the original series. Like I said, you've got Kirk in the thick of it, getting in fights, seducing women, etc. That was one of the hallmarks of the original series. If this was made now, you can imagine the finale would be far more boisterous than it is here, but it was made in 1990 and released in 1991. Yeah, but you still get really epic films from that time. It's not high-octane and adventure was beyond their grasp. No, but I would always argue that Star Trek is never supposed to be that. And Chris Pine said in an interview recently that he agrees that Star Trek does not need to be a billion dollar grossing franchise. And they kept trying to make it a summer blockbuster, which doesn't work. Make a thoughtful film for less money and you will get a return on it because people will watch it and get something out of it. This wasn't an immensely high budget film. A lot of the budget went to the cast, actually. I think it delivers a satisfying conclusion to those characters. It's just the fact that 
it ends with him saying, we're done now. We're going to go and retire. And that's us. We won't be seen again, apart from three of us in the next film. That's quite a cute way to end it. To be like, okay, and goodbye. And they actually um, literally sign off at the end. Yeah, that's quite nice. But I also feel like talking about making films that are lower budget and thoughtful and not high oxygen. I'm like, yeah, I seek those films out a lot, but they're not ever going to be found for me, I think, in a Star Trek film. But they could be. They could and arguably should be. No, because I would want, I think if we're going to be in space, we're going to be in space. And I just think it needs to be a bit more. I don't know. I'm just going to go back to my original, like, that Fast and Furious, you're ending an epic six movie thing. It felt, again, a little bit like a TV film for me. Did you want Shatner to escape Brewer Penthe on a dirt bike or a snowmobile riding through the tundra? <laughs> yeah, just maybe something my mind wandered during this film. It didn't keep my attention. And that's just me personally. There would be people like yourself that are just so invested in the Star Trek universe that it has all of those things for you, which I think is amazing because you can pick up on all of the nuances, you get a lot of it, and I think that's great. And again, I think it's just not watching them in any chronological order. As a film on its own, as a standalone movie, it hasn't been able to capture me. Okay, I accept that. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and probably it was important for you then to understand it. And again, mm. going back to context, that if you're watching it and trying to appreciate the end of an era and these characters going off into an undiscovered country, yes. then without that context, it's difficult to mm-hmm. relate to, maybe. Yeah. Whereas I feel like you could watch any fashion <laughs> And it may be a little bit complicated because they do get complicated. And even me watching them, I've been like, what happened to this and why is this here and blah, blah, blah. But they do a little recap for it. <laughs> They have a character explicitly say, oh, we thought that you had died in the last <laughs> film. And then you're like, oh, yeah, we did. What happened Weren't you that? just a mechanic and now you're flying a car in space? Exactly. I thought you were in this car that just crashed. Oh, I thought you were killed by Jason Statham. Oh, I thought you weren't in the car at all. Yeah, exactly. They clear it up. And that's great. I think coming in as a rogue viewer for <laughs> this movie was a really interesting experience. By the time this podcast releases, I might have seen the rest of season three of Picard, which is selling itself as the closing chapter for the Next Generation crew. And I shudder to think how manipulatively saccharine it's going to be because I feel like it's going to try and force these emotional beats on you in a really inorganic way Mm. because that's just my perception of the Picard show. I don't feel the authenticity that I should, but I feel the authenticity here. It does feel like a a respectful farewell to these characters and Mm. it's never undone. You could argue that Generations undoes it a little bit, but it doesn't really. Angus, with you as the knowing a bit about Star Trek, you could be the Dr. McCoy to me and Natalie's Kirk and Spock offer the middle ground here. (laughs) What's your thoughts on this as a wrap-up? Hey, wait. Am I the villain, Spock? Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did get a bit of the closing chapter feels at the end of this. I agree it's not as bombastic or it's not as big scale as we might think of blockbusters being, but then I don't think, as you've said, that it should be or that it was ever expected to be. It's not a blockbuster at all. This film isn't. No, but I think when we think of sci-fi or movies with lots of spaceships and space battles and aliens and all that kind of stuff, maybe just because of everything else that we're used to seeing, you've got a certain expectation, but then you're expecting the wrong thing because that's not what you're going to get from this. I've also seen sci-fi films or films set in space that are slower or have quite complicated or quite simple narratives. I feel like I've seen quite a broad range 
or space-based films. Well, the broad range does exist, but that's not what they've retained about Star Trek in more recent years. If you look at the three reboot films, they're all action films. Yeah, I'm just saying I've watched, I think, quite a broad scope of films since me. Yeah, and that's what frustrates me about the approach to Star Trek, certainly in film form at this point in time, because it is about the moving between set-piece moments. And as much as I enjoy that, on occasion I really like Star Trek Beyond, but it's an action film, and I feel like that's diminishing the potential of this as a franchise, because you can tell these thoughtful sci-fi stories, and you can put these characters in crisis situations that they have to deal with, rather than, here's another villain with a big black death ship, or whatever. Yeah, but if you don't have these big moments, or these big story arches, or pieces, well, all you've got then is... Characters? Plot? No, you've just got a long TV episode that you're like, doesn't need to be classed as a film. Why can't it just be an extended episode because you want to tackle a slightly longer plot line? For me, I'm like, for it to be a movie, I don't know. Well, anyway, what I was going to say is, if you set all those expectations aside, it is clearly a very layered film. We've talked about a lot of those, about the history, about the cast about the actual plot that you've got going on here there's a lot to dig into there's a lot of literary references there's a lot of 20th century history references even within the film they're not referring specifically to the cold war but they're actually talking a lot about historical context there's context again and at the same time as i've said i enjoyed some of the pulpier aspects of it as well so i think there's a lot there to enjoy from lots of different perspectives yeah i think there's a lot in there for a lot of different people i take your point natalie about perhaps what people expect from a sort of movie scale or from something being, Craig, you've said it's not a blockbuster, and I don't know, maybe that's just a sort of preconception that people might have based on maybe the fact that if newer viewers are coming to this and they've only engaged with the newer Star Trek films, then that's what they expect out of it. But you're right, that's not what your expectations should be. But there is definitely a lot to enjoy. Yeah, and they could go back to making Star Trek films that are more like this rather than the high-budget have to make a billion dollars action movies. Yeah, I just can't really see it because I feel like we've talked about it a lot about the way that filmmaking or Hollywood filmmaking is going and if it's not a billion dollar return then a lot of those smaller movies or those more thoughtful movies aren't getting made. No, I don't agree. I think that there is space for thoughtful films and for slower films or for films that don't fit into the blockbuster and they're there. We've seen it recently, I think a lot, like Tar. I wouldn't call that a blockbuster movie and that did really, really well. I feel like there's so many examples and there's definitely space for it. What Angus is getting at is franchise media. Ah, okay, specifically franchise. It feels like they would never make a Star Trek movie that isn't the high-octane, high-budget blockbuster type because they want it to be that billion-dollar franchise. Mm. But if you scale back the expectation and spend less money on it, it has to live or die on its story and the way that its characters interact and things like that rather than the big-budget set pieces. And I think there would be a place for Star Trek in that sphere. It could be the franchise that, you know what, we're going to spend $80 on this and we'll make four times its budget because we'll release it later in the year and it doesn't need to be a huge hit in order for it to be a hit. It doesn't need to be released on Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be. Why not? It's interesting because I feel like there's absolute space and I think for Star Trek, if that is what fans are asking for, that if they were to do it, I'm sure it would be fine. I think what maybe I'm saying is I would rather watch one of the more contemporary films than watch this film again. Okay. Well, with that in mind, what one are we doing next year? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have the motion picture the search for spock 
and The Final Frontier, 1, 3, and 5. Those are the remaining not covered by this podcast movies. Or we could go back and you could be on an episode about a film that we've covered before, but you weren't on. We could do that. I'll have a look at what IMDb. No, no, don't listen to them, losers. <laughs> and I might have a little look at the storylines and then pick one. That sounds interesting. Or we'll just pick one now and subject you to it. Angus, do you have a preference on either of those three? No, I don't. I'm willing to be led by the winds of fate. Well, the motion picture <laughs> is challenging as a watch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I'd be interested in getting that one out of the way. Okay, that's quite interesting way to preface it. I also want to say that I feel like I might have come across as a little bit harsh on this, but I think it proved to me that Star Trek maybe in this form isn't for me. Like I said, I love that you enjoy this film so much and that you get a lot of enjoyment out of it because you said you watch it quite a lot and I couldn't pinpoint how many hundreds of times you've seen it, but (laughs) great that you love it so much. Yeah. So shall we... Do the motion picture next year then. Uh, you look like you want a challenging watch. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, might be washing my hair. <laughs> Could do another viewing party because I have it on 4K. Oh, well, if there's pizza. You get to play with a cat. If there's pizza and there's real life Spock, then I'll be there. Pizza, 4K and real life Spock. Yeah. Those three things could happen. Yeah. <laughs> I won't guarantee that I'll make it onto the podcast. But... Okay. Captain's discretion then. We're going to do the motion picture. Fantastic. Or, as some fans like to call it, the slow motion picture. Oh, for goodness sakes, Craig! (laughs) Or, as other fans like to call it, the motionless picture. Oh, why do we do this? But I'm not going to say why those things are. You might love this one, I don't know. You might have the contrary opinion of being like, wow, this is what I wanted. Is this going to turn it around? Is this going to be like a Is this number one? Yeah. To be fair, I need to start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Of the TV series. Oh, wait, what? Okay, let's just do some brief wrap-up thoughts then, now that we've decided what we're doing next year. So, Angus, final thoughts. I liked that the trial made me think of Transformers 1986. I liked the prison stuff. I liked a lot about this. I liked all of the different layers. I liked the fact that it was the sign-off, even though, as I've said, I do think of Generations as being the handover. The undiscovered context is maybe where I need to go. Because we've jumped around and we haven't watched these in order, I think I would find it more effective if you go all the way through Mm -hmm. the movies. Although, as you've now been saying one, three, and five aren't good. (laughs) Three is good. I like three, actually. Okay. But yeah, I wonder how it would play out as this combination of a six-movie cycle. Maybe that gives you a whole different perspective on it. But in general, I enjoyed it. I like being in the middle of you two. (laughs) (laughs) Always providing a bit of balance, not to the force, but to this conversation. (laughs) Natalie, what are your final thoughts? Do you know what? I feel like I've been a little bit harsh, but I did enjoy Iman as a Lost Cats character. (laughs) I also really enjoyed the cameo for Christian Slater when it did finally appear. I enjoyed thinking that they'd made Spock a villain. (laughs) I think maybe that's what I'm feeling better about because actually they weren't up to that at all. Personally, it felt a bit of a challenge to watch it, but I think that again we've established it's just because these characters have obviously been developed a lot in other movies and it just they weren't the ones that I've seen so it was a very interesting insight I think into these characters although I did recognize some things I do like like whenever the ship shakes I love people just crawling around on the floor trying to get back to their seats so I really enjoyed that but yeah I think if you're starting out into Star Trek you should definitely not start with this one okay yeah I would agree (laughs) Finally, consensus. 
Yeah, my final thought. Favourite Star Trek film. Absolutely love it. I know it's popular to say The Wrath of Khan's the best one, but to me this is the best one for all sorts of reasons. I've seen it countless times and I will watch it countless more. Mm-hmm. I believe Across that. the rest of my life. <laughs> I might watch it tonight. I don't know. Oh my Who God, knows? do it. No, I'm not going to watch it Do tonight. it and then think about Fast and Furious. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not think about Fast and Furious. I have to say, that's another thing I really liked. I like that Gus and I both thought, about Fast and Furious while watching this film. It's been a long day without you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> been a long day. I do not like the Fast and Furious I franchise. Well, That's another story. This, I love it, and I love it because it is absolutely mental. It's great. Well, that's your prerogative. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for taking me on this wild ride, I think. Looks like we've once again saved civilization as we know it. To quote... Kirk himself. We did it, you guys. We did it. That was our discussion about Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country, as our first contact day celebration. So happy minus 40th anniversary (laughs) of first contact to everybody. Hope you all celebrate in the best way possible, which may be watching some Star Trek. Watch some good Star Trek. Be good to yourself. Do that. I would like to thank Captain Meat Shield for the supplied music. And Angus Natalie, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this trek. Oh, thanks for having me. I know I've been difficult. (laughs) Happy first contact day. Live long and prosper. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can mash a button that lets you review things with usually a star rating star rating for a star trek podcast natalie how many stars there won't be quite as many as in the universe but there'll be some how many i'm gonna go with it's a black hole <laughs> no stars then well i think depending on which side of the black hole you're on there might be no stars there might be all of them but for me i'm on the no stars i don't think you're being asked for a rating just now <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? How many stars should people give this podcast? Oh. Is the question I was asking. <laughs> I thought you went to film. No, no, no. <laughs> we only do this every time. <laughs> How many stars do people get? Five. All of them. Five stars. Five, stars. Stars. Yeah, five star tracks. <laughs> and uh, comment as well would be very much appreciated and if you want to talk about the undiscovered country star trek in general or anything really you can hit us up on facebook or twitter under neil before blog or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk and as always we hope you'll join us second start of the right and straight until morning on the next <laughs> neil before pod oh beautiful